Welcome to Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. This is the 50th episode of Menu Stories, and to celebrate the milestone, we have a very special guest, executive chef owner Suzette Gresham of Aquarello, a beloved Italian restaurant in San Francisco's Russian Hill neighborhood that boasts two Michelin stars. The restaurant just celebrated its 28th birthday last year, no small feat for a San Francisco restaurant. With such an impressive resume and with the level of elegance that greets you at the door as soon as you walk in at Aquarello, you might expect to see the stereotypical, stuffy, arrogant chef in the kitchen, yelling at the staff while throwing around plates and expletives. Instead, you'll find the incredibly warm, passionate, and approachable Suzette Gresham. But don't let her good nature fool you. She expects herself and her team to work hard, constantly learn from their mistakes, and deliver only the best. Let's have a listen. So we are here at Aquarello with executive chef Suzette Gresham. And Aquarello just celebrated its 28th anniversary just in this past July. So congratulations, chef. Thank you. We know that you have this storied history. It's been almost three decades, so we have a lot to cover. But let's start out how we normally do, if you could just introduce yourself and your role. Certainly. My name is Suzette Gresham. I'm the chef and co-owner uh, with my partner, Giancarlo Patrolini of Aquarello here in San Francisco. Uh, it is our 28th year uh, as of July, and uh, probably no one more surprised than me to still be here. <laughs> well, congratulations again. So... In your own words, what is Aquarello? That's a big topic because Aquarello has become something than what it started out to be. Uh, when Giancarlo and I left the Donatello, I think we had a simpler venue in mind. But when you go shopping with someone who has elegant taste, such as Giancarlo, and you're looking at you know Libby's glassware and he's looking at the Riedel crystal, uh, or you're looking at the stainless steel and he's looking at the Reed and Barton, or you're looking at you know the white simple china and he's over there looking at the Lennox, you realize it's going to take on a persona. Our food start out much simpler and more humble, I think. In in respect to the era of Italian cuisine here in San Francisco, but it was very soulful, it was delicious, it was certainly, I like to think of it as simple elegance, which it still is today in lots of respects, but also that expectation from our clientele at the Donatello when we left was they thought they would be going to equal to or better than, and so we had to pretty much step up our game from the get-go, so Trattoria was off the table as soon as we opened the doors. Can you speak a little bit more about Donatello and what that was? Well, Giancarlo was there for a good eight or nine years before I entered the scene, and actually he hired me. Um, it was quite interesting because it was the premier Italian dining restaurant in San Francisco, and that truly, I think, is attributed to, to Giancarlo. And he was the general manager of the hotel as well. And so uh, he was looking for a new chef, and they had a long line of Italian chefs there. Um, and I was the dark horse of the 10 applicants. We had to come and cook for him and Mr. Rossi, who was the owner. And I did eight courses, and I, and I had to do it in their kitchen, just kind of off the cuff, because I worked at the time for United Airlines, and so there was no ability for me to take them to my facility. So I just, you know, tried to put myself together in their facility. But I like to think that my food spoke to them. I certainly needed refinement, and I had never been an executive chef before. I was a sous chef at United. But he saw the diamond in the rough, I like to think, and so we went from there. And so when was when was this? Oh my gosh, this is already back in 1988, 1989, because I was there for just barely a year, and Ocarello opened in July of 1989. So we'd already been together for a year at the Donatello uh, and left together to open Ocarello. 
Where in San Francisco was Donatello? It still is. Uh, it has changed names. It's inside a hotel, and it is called Zingare now. So it's okay. still a viable restaurant here in San Francisco. What neighborhood is that? Um, I would say that's uh, the top of, uh, what's our famous hill over here? Um, Russian Hill? No, no, the, the, <laughs> the big telegraph. one. Oh, no, Coit no, Tower. Where, is no, Nob Hill. Nob Hill. It's, Nob uh, Hill. Is, you come, we have so many hills. Yeah, so many hills. <laughs> but uh, I don't live in the city, and I always get tongue-tied when I try and think about regions, but it's yeah. over on Post. Uh, Post Trio was right next door to it, and so the Donatello is a hotel. The restaurant's up in the hotel. I do want to hear more about your history in the restaurant world, but... Maybe before we go deeper into that, would love to know more about where you're from and where you grew up. Well, I'm a local, you know, native Californian, which is sometimes rare in this day and age. My grandmother immigrated from France in 1906 and came through Ellis Island and made her way down to New Orleans. We don't know exactly when she left, but we know it affected her cooking style. And uh, my mother was born here, first generation, 1919, at the French hospital here in San Francisco, which people don't even remember. There was a thriving Italian community. There was a thriving French community. There was Portuguese. And they uh, survived here in San Francisco when I was born. Gosh, I hate to say the year 1957 and born in Redwood City. My mom couldn't make it to San Francisco. I was coming too quickly, I guess. Wow. And so um, <laughs> I lived on the peninsula in San Carlos almost all of my youth until my adult years, moved to San Mateo. I've always been avid into gardening because that's what my family did. We always had fresh herbs, fresh vegetables, um, lived a lot off of uh, canning and preserving, a uh, lot of good food at home. Mom was an excellent cook, although I didn't know until I went to community college, came home and told my family I thought I wanted to be a chef. And they all sat down and cried because they didn't want me to do that. They had left France for the new world for a better life, and they were all chefs. And nobody had told me. I didn't know this. Wow. And they didn't let my mom cook. They kept her out of the kitchen, and she was supposed to be educated in college and all that. And, and she innately kind of came back to food and was a good cook at home, but I just kind of brought it all full circle. And my grandmother laughed, you know, after they got done being upset with me, and I said, I think it's in the blood, Grandma. And she said, <laughs> I guess. Go see what you can do. You know, and that was not a time for women to be in the kitchen. It was the yeah. 1970s. And so I, looking back, I think I was a pioneer. I didn't even think about it at the time. I was just yeah. trying to survive. It was a very tough world. So in your family, were the men primarily the chefs or were They were, well? but ironically, it was my great aunt Grace, uh, who's actually in California history books as an entrepreneur. And she was uh, Gracieuse Cotillion. And uh, my mother was named after her. She had Grace and Pierre's Café de Paris in Atherton from the 1920s and through the 1930s for about 18 years. And back when you were a San Franciscan, you would take your Sundays and motor to the countryside down to three locations. You'd either go to L'Omelette, uh, Dinah's Shack, or you'd go to our place, Grace and Pierre's, and you'd have your Sunday you know, uh, event or buffet or dinner, and then you'd head back home to San Francisco. And so I'm very happy to have seen it once when I was about five or six years old on El Camino, down the Menlo Park, Atherton area. And uh, the gentleman who bought it from our family in those days when you weren't doing well, you burnt it down for the insurance money. And it's really sad because <laughs> oh it would gosh. have been on the National Historic Register. It was a beautiful building, had a spiral staircase. Aww. And it was great Aunt Grace who actually was the chef. But she was very clever. She put a chef in uniform, gave him all her recipes, and she married in her third marriage a younger man, 20 years her junior, which was scandalous, French, a very attractive man. And she put him behind the bar and she said, please go flirt with all the ladies. So this was a very business-oriented woman, <laughs> if you will. And uh, she did fabulously. She's like, you, I think you can sell drinks. I'm going to marry you. Okay. you at the bar. <laughs> uh, I'll, give it, I'll, give, I'll give it a shot. And 
what about your family while they were in France? Do you know anything about I don't know that? as much because my grandma came at the age of 16, and mm-hmm. she tells the story as if she was just thinking, oh, America, it's just over there, like crossing the river. And she told the story, and there's so many great tales. And I know they were true because during the course of my lifetime, they never deviated. She never changed them. She came over pretty much ignorant and barefoot and only making to, like, second-grade education. She was from a large family, 11 kids. Her father was a shoemaker, a very preferred shoemaker, someone who made elegant leather shoes in a village that had some wealthy people and, of course, more poverty-level people. And um, he was known for his joy of song and drink and that he didn't produce a lot of shoes. I like to think they were quality <laughs> shoes, but... Uh, uh, it was a little tough, and so that's what led her and, and my great aunt Grace to leave to seek a better life. Wow! Um, oh, southwestern France, by the way, down a little tiny town of Bedus, which is just about forty-five minutes from Spain. We are not Basque; we are Bas Pyrenees, so we are Bearnais. Interesting. The little pieces that I know—I'm the last link, so I'm trying to get this all to my kids. But my husband, being Italian, they've been so Italianized they don't even realize they have this part of their heritage. Right, and you as well have become Italian. I I feel so guilty because I am more comfortable, I think, in Italy now than I am in France. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, though, between those regions. Um, Countryside, certainly. There's the great love of the vegetables and the simple preparations and the love of the land uh, came through. My grandmother was an avid gardener, vegetables as well as flowers, and it carried to my mom and to me and, you know, back in the Victory Garden days during the wars. And But that canning and preser- preserving and gathering the best of the peaches, the best of the tomatoes, all of that just leads to this idea of how good food should be mm-hmm. on a regular daily basis. And that's very Italian, very French. And and how much it changes with the season. Oh, and it's, you don't, available. you know, you live to eat. I mean, it's a culture. Yeah, it's a cultural right. thing. We're right. always in search of something. And I certainly have carried that into my chef dome as well. So you've shared a lot about your your family history and sort of how your love of food is almost in your blood, as you said. What was the first memory that you do have of food? One of my earliest memories, my mom always made all kinds of things that I liked, but I remember sitting outside the kitchen on a step in the summer, my hands, you know, holding up my head, saying, is it done yet? Is it done yet? And my mom was like, no, Suzette, I will let you know. And she was inside making a handmade latticework peach pie. We had an O. Henry peach tree in our yard, this little lone peach tree that was just prolific. And O. Henry's, to this day, I go on this big search to try and find them because they're an old-fashioned heirloom peach that's extremely floral and tense and juicy and small. And so they're concentrated. And so she would make these pies with peaches and just do this lavish lattice work on top. And I would just sit outside smelling how it was baking in the oven, waiting, waiting, waiting. And the other thing, too, is being a little kid and, like, this is ridiculous, but we grew tomatoes. Another old variety was called a Pearson. A Pearson tomato was the best canning tomato. It was solid. It was round. They grew very similar in size, but they were meaty and juicy. And the mayonnaise jar and a spoon and I would disappear, and I'd say, I'm going to go water. I'm going to go water now. And I would put the hose on the different tomato plants, sit in the shade on a stepping stone, and pick the tomatoes off the plants, run them under the hose, and then bite into them and eat them with this jar of mayonnaise. And I would come back in the house and, and like a day later, my mom would say, you know, I guess the squirrels are getting all the tomatoes. There's just such a low yield this year. I can't imagine. I'm like, I don't know, mom, I guess. How old were you at the same? Probably about seven. Oh my gosh. You're out there eating all the tomatoes. <laughs> One, I'm an apricot addict. If you ever want to make points with me, bring me Blenheim's. If anybody understands the apricot world, Blenheim is the king. 
and they actually they're called Royal Blenheims, and I, there's not a lot I won't do for a Blenheim. Or, you know, if you bring me some, maybe you'll be ended up with a glass of wine. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I say apricot, too. I think it's a California thing. I've heard some people say, say apricot. apricot. Oh, what are they saying? Right. It doesn't make apricot. any sense. Well, I agree. It's probably right. Who knows? But that's what I grew up with. <laughs> well, let's just pretend like apricot's the right way okay. to say <laughs> I trust you, the chef. So um, you mentioned that you started getting interested in the restaurant world and culinary school when you were in community college. What was it, so especially since you didn't know your history of food and your family? Very much so. I was working silly college students need money, right? So I was working in the cafeteria. And I was with, can you imagine this era of the little ladies in the white dresses with the white hose, the white shoes, and the white hairnets, right? So I was back there having a grand time. And we'd be making all these sandwiches because cafeterias made fresh food. Mm-hmm. So we're making all these sandwiches and salads and I'm having a great time with all these little old ladies and so the manager one day says would you know have you thought about um being a chef I'm like oh women don't do that he said you should and it was an eye-opening experience and I was already in my third semester at um College of San Mateo and uh, I was helping him cater and do you know parties for professors there at, at the school campus and such and I said to my mom do you think I could go over to Kenyatta College in Redwood City they have a food tech program she's like no you need to stay and finish what you started and when you get to that point you know we'll see because she was trying to delay me or stop me you thought it was a whim so I finished I graduated I said so you know that program I mentioned I really want to go check that out and she's like well I guess and I didn't think I was going to be a chef I thought restaurant manager something I wasn't sure but when you get into the program that they had you were forced to do the smattering of things like work in the dining room you know, work in the kitchen, do dishes. It was very real. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love with it. And I started to compete, actually. And I started doing competitions. And I kept doing really well in the competitions because that was culinary arts. And I had really done a lot of art classes. I loved art. Mm-hmm. And so it really came to fruition with food. Um, and that worked well for me because I kept getting my name in front of the public. And that probably was the reason why I got to go to the Olympics in the 1980s. This is culinary Olympics, mind you. Um, so it. culinary okay. Olympics are once every four years. And they're usually held in Germany at the the Messengerlande in Frankfurt. I was the first female apprentice to go with the American team, and that was the year that we won more awards than we'd ever won before. For me, that was a game changer. That was a life-altering experience. That was the year that the first female chef was on the team, and I was the first female apprentice to the team. Wow. So 1980, um, the, there was a series of chefs. They were from all over the United States. They had to try out mm-hmm. uh, as well in order to get to go, and Ferdinand Metz, who's still living and was the president at CIA in Hard Park for years, was our team manager and team captain that year and it was we called him the machine because he was so perfect people would take out a yardstick to measure things and he would do it by sight he was flawless just flawless so when you're in that environment your your aspirations just grow beyond what you think you can even do you dream you dream a little bit it's one of my favorite things to tell my kids now is like don't be afraid to dream yeah that's amazing too that there's even um, a food Olympics. I've never heard. Of it's such not a thing. as well known, maybe outside of the industry, but yeah. it's really something to be proud of. America's done exceedingly well. America yeah. was the underdog because we're a polyglot here, yeah. where every other country—Germany, France, Italy, Spain—they they are who they are. But we were yet to identify what was American cuisine. How mm-hmm. could that shape up? How could that be? And so it was the year that we really broke through. Was the 1980s. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I had no idea. I mean, you hear about in 1980, the uh, the Winter Olympics for America was uh, the Athletic Olympics <laughs> was a big year, too. So that's kind of cool that that was also a big culinary Olympics year for the country. So were you in school when you went to the Culinary Olympics? You said you were an apprentice. No, I had actually graduated by then. I did after school went to a culinary apprenticeship. So I was in the apprenticeship, which I'm not sure that everyone understands what it is. It's three years of indentureship. So my 
parents, my family was set against this because I'd done two years of community college for an AA degree, now two years of college for an AS degree and a certificate in hotel management and restaurants. And then I said I was going to do an indentured apprenticeship, which was on the job, but they simply used it as an excuse to cut your pay to a third of what everyone else was making. And then every six weeks you'd be judged or evaluated and you get some increment more. So three years of servitude, basically. But I was at the Dunphy Hotel in San Mateo and they treated me very well. But during my apprenticeship, nine different chefs came and went. So that's not your norm and that's not good. It was the era. It allowed me to really step in and learn a lot more trial under fire than anything else, especially one of the chefs and sous chefs were killed in a car crash. And I actually got the call from the highway patrol because they had their chef coats on, but they couldn't really identify them. Um, And it was my first dealings. I was 21 to deal with death, let alone deal with the running of a restaurant inside a hotel that was facing convention season. But I found myself every time being thrust in these different roles where all of a sudden someone has to write the schedule. Someone has to go get the BEOs or the banquet orders. So I learned so much by that adverse situation that it became the way that I learned. I just became used to adversity. Mm -hmm. So I developed a little tougher skin maybe than the average person. And so when I left the hotel and went to another job, I just was prepared for the adversity. And when I found people didn't either want to work with me or didn't want a woman in the kitchen, it meant nothing. It, I just kind of kept going, kept going, kept going. It was like being a mule at this point was really my best attribute. Like a mule, I know where the barn is and I'm always going to get there. I might be slower than the racehorse, but uh, the mule's going to get there. Yeah. And that was always my mantra. I always joke about it now that I'm, <laughs> I'm a little slower maybe than the average person, but I never give up. And sometimes that's kind of crazy, but I, I just don't give up. And yeah, it's clearly fun. worked out okay for you. Yeah, I think so. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and we'll be right back with executive chef owner Suzette Gresham of Aquarello. Fast forward to you're leaving Donatello with Giancarlo to open Aquarello. Right. What inspired that move? What well, that? as a chef, when you work with a manager who has a vision that's objective, you realize the beauty of this. It was never I like, I want, I think. It's what the guests liked, the guests wanted, what the feedback was. And so I realized in a short amount of time, Giancarlo's position of value uh, at that facility. And when he said that he had had a phone call, from the owner of this particular space at this time was called Zola's. Larry Baines owned it uh, with his partners, Rachel Gardner and Catherine Pancios. They were doing fabulously, but they had an opportunity to move to another location that was closer down to the Civic Center, and they wanted to take advantage of that. And so Giancarlo and I came to just talk to Larry, and Giancarlo had approached me and simply said, you know, the timeshare here at the Donatello is taking over more and more space. I'm worried about our client base, and there's this opportunity. I don't know if you're interested, if you'd like to go. And so in like 13 seconds, I knew that wherever Giancarlo was going to go, I wanted to go. Because he'd been that person. He'd been my guiding light. He'd been the one who's objective. He had said, this doesn't work because, or the guests don't like it because. And you, you never find that. He was so guest-driven. And to me, that's the epitome of hospitality. Mm-hmm. And that's also the epitome of this restaurant. And I feel that way about food. Because when you're making food from the soul, if you really put love in your food, it goes hand in hand with that philosophy. And so once we came here and we'd had a meeting with Larry and we stepped outside, it's, it's my biggest joke. And I looked at Giancarlo and I said, Giancarlo, I don't know very much, but I, I think we bought that restaurant. He's like, yeah, I think so. We were so naive. We, we didn't know. And 
it was the, you know then what ensued was giving notice to the Donatello that we're leaving and Mr. Rossi was so angry with me he didn't speak to me for the longest time he felt I had stolen Giancarlo from him and he felt like he discovered Giancarlo so it was just a very interesting beginning to come to the restaurant we had very little money we put up our houses Giancarlo had just had a baby uh, his wife was nursing on the banquet as we were painting and cleaning and we did what was called a turnkey and in lots of terms you just kind of slap up some paint, you clean up really well, you kind of give it your own little stamp, and then you open the doors and hope to make some money because you have none. So what was it like when you opened the doors, and when did you oh know Oh my gosh, the kitchen work? wasn't what you see today. Uh-huh. It was a, a third, a quarter of the size, and you couldn't bend over and get in the oven without bumping into the guy in the pantry. <laughs> you couldn't go to the ladies' room unless you walked through the kitchen. Um, oh, wow. You know, it was Even really as a guest. As a guest, yeah. you know, uh-huh. and that was our joke. Our busboys were like, they'd see a beautiful woman, they'd say, dali aqua, which means give her water. <laughs> they wanted her to walk through the kitchen just so they could they could see her you know and it was pretty funny <laughs> it was our joke but you know and, and I mean our our bread service was cut on top of our ice machine which was right next to our you know plating of our desserts which was done there was three of us you know the plating of the desserts I mean sometimes the waiters would plate desserts you know what I mean and sometimes the waiters were ha- helping me to plate something because they were just we were tiny yeah we were tiny so what's happened is over the years, we have become the anchor tenant, but we took over the dining room and expanded. We put our front door, we changed our wine room, we added the wine room, we added this gold room, we expanded the kitchen back here. The kitchen wasn't there. That was a beauty salon. There was three wow. other businesses up and down this hallway. So, I mean, it's little by little by little. You just And Giancarlo's the vision. He always has a vision. And then I look at him, I think he's crazy, and then I try to do whatever the vision is. You know, yeah. like just the metamorphosis of maybe we didn't have the cheese cart at one point, or maybe we didn't have the beautiful minardis that we have, or we didn't have the level of wine capacity or service you know now we have three wine cellars we have a psalm team we, we didn't have that when we started so what, when was the moment that you knew that um, you were picking up steam and that you were becoming a popular restaurant and actually getting you know critical well there claim? was a lot of time there I remember what we went through too you know 90 days after we opened the 1989 earthquake hit and wow. we were closed for 10 days at this crux of importance and I had to give away all my veal and lamb and all of my fish. I had no refrigeration, no gas. I couldn't get home to San Carlos. We all stayed. One of our waiters named Byron, he, he took us all in. Giancarlo couldn't stay in his condo. The elevator wasn't working. There was no electricity. Him with a newborn baby and a three-year-old, his son, oh Giancarlo, gosh. who is our wine director, we all camped out at Byron's because he had gas and water and a phone. And I had to call the Virgin Islands to find out if my dog was okay in San Carlos because all the circuits were blocked. It was just, you don't think about that. And that was only 1989. That's not that long ago. But we came back, we went through with this mass exodus when all of the cooks left to go to Las Vegas because they opened up the food scene in Las Vegas. We've gone through recessions. We watched 250 restaurants close all around us, you know, so... You knock on your head, you knock on wood, you say, thank you, God. And you just keep, I mean, there was many a night, Giancarlo would cold call concierge and say, you know, we just want to let you know we're here and we're a full service restaurant. If you have someone who's a little more difficult, we'll take them because we're that kind of restaurant, you know, and we built ourselves on that personal service. But in the world of, you know, the empires that you build, that's probably stupid because you can't clone yourself into five locations. And we made it very much that we were tied to this location. This was our baby. We were here. And honestly, we didn't even take days off at the same time one of us was always here except when I had a baby but you know and then I had a second one but you know that's the way it goes <laughs> a little bit more forgivable in this situation yeah at least we hope and notably Aquarello now has two Michelin stars what was it like when you got the first one and rose into those ranks with that rating well it's wonderfully rewarding it's you know I have to say that I think Giancarlo and I have always striven to do what we thought was right no matter who recognized us But it's lovely and wonderfully rewarding to be recognized from the outside by peers. It was really incredible, I think, to 
to think that a small, humble restaurant had grown to that point. To see the journey in retrospect to be considered of that level, I always worry and fear that I'm either not going to keep it or I'm going to lose it. Or So it certainly does affect your thinking about what it means. And mm -hmm. I do it for my crew because it means something to them. It really means something to them. And they want to work at the best. They want to aspire and grow into whatever their hopes and dreams are. And so mm -hmm. this is one of their stepping stones that has to be memorable and, and count. So it was really especially heartwarming to get the second star. And that was the shock. And I mean, I'll never forget that day. And someone had tipped me off. They thought we were getting a second star. And I said, no, no, no. And I'd come in early because I was going that night to the reception. And they call you. The Michelin inspectors, whoever their designated person is, calls you. And I always had the same woman had always called me and said, we're proud to award this star to you, la, la, la. So that morning I'd come in early and I was in my kitchen. I told them what had happened. I said, I got tipped off. We might have a second star this year. I don't think so, but I'm just letting you guys know. And so I went back in the office and no sooner had I said that, but the phone rang and it was the Michelin inspector. And she said, Suzette, how are you doing? Uh, so I'm having a great day. She goes, I'm about to make your day a little bit better. And I'm you know, having a nice conversation with her. We're always talking about what I could do better. And I'm always asking for how we find out about the review and what we could improve upon. And she said, you've been working really hard and we think that this year you should go up to two stars. And I was, I was speechless. I've never speechless. I was speechless. <laughs> and I walked outside I looked at Theron, he's my pastry guy, he's been here 10 years. Yeah. You know, I looked at him and he looked at me and he said, something wrong, chef? And I said, nothing. And he said, did we get the second? He knew me, he knows me so well. I was like, did we get the second star? And I just kind of ran over and gave him a hug. I started to cry, I couldn't speak. I, I just couldn't speak. He said, we got it, didn't we? And I, I just said, I just shook my head, I just shook my head. Everyone was screaming and yelling in the kitchen, you know, we drank champagne for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, <laughs> we, were, we were excited to say the least, you know, and it's a great honor. I guess there's only three women in the United States that have two stars, you know, so that's a bonus as well. Wonderful. And, you know, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And so we live trying to live up to that because I always feel like we've always done well in spite of, in spite of our tiny kitchen or in spite of not having this bell and whistle or in spite of having lack of something. But I can't tell you how rewarding it is to think that someone's noticed how hard we try, how hard we work. And how rewarding to be in a small group of female leaders, too, in the culinary world, and also how frustrating that there's only three. Well, you know, I all these years, I never thought about that because I just wanted to be a cook. I just wanted to be a chef. I just wanted to succeed. I never thought about the female aspect because I didn't want to be sold out for being female. I didn't want it because I was the only one. I wanted to be good as everybody else was. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, to earn it the way that they did. I didn't want to be singled out for that. If anything, it's been more of an adverse thing than a positive thing. I've tried to turn it into a positive thing, but I just didn't, I wanted to be a chef. Sex aside, I didn't care about that. So you've kind of alluded to the fact that your team and the people that you work with are really important to you and that Giancarlo is customer driven. A lot of times people who are at the top of their industry have big egos and are more emotional with their decisions like you kind of mentioned. So it is refreshing to see how personable you are and down to earth you are contrasted with the fact that you are a two Michelin star restaurant. How do you think that translates to the way you run the kitchen and the kind of people you bring in? What are some challenges that you've had around running a restaurant and maintaining that level of being down to earth while still performing excellent work? That's a really big conglomerate question there, but I'm going I'm to try and break that back down. Um, Sorry. I think I that uh, my love of food is first and foremost. 
and I'm pretty OCD. It's, it's just in every part of my life. My poor children cannot escape it. They're also <laughs> into food. But I think in the beginning, I remembered from my experiences that probably the three most effective tools in managing a kitchen were fear, intimidation, and ridicule. And I made a vow to myself as I was getting a little beat up that if I, if I ever made it to be a chef, I would never use fear, intimidation, and ridicule. Well, little did I know before I owned my own restaurant, those are really effective tools for a reason. <laughs> and so I had to find a supplement. I had to find a way. And so the only thing I knew was education and to engage people and to give them what they wanted, which was as important as a paycheck. It was that intrinsic value. It was that, what am I learning on this job? What am I getting out of this? And so being purely selfish, I have this ability, I think, to see many times what suits a people's needs. Some people come in with a huge skill set, but they've never done Italian food. Some people are putting their foot in the door in San Francisco and never been here before and have a clue about what San Francisco's like. Some people have no skill set, but have great passion. And so you can imagine how this list just changes for every single personality that walks through the door. So my ability has been to be engaging, to figure that out, to talk directly to what you need to work on, whether you want to hear it or not. Um, motherhood helped me quite a bit. It built in patience and it built in tolerance and it built in a human quality, but also don't mistake the fact that I'm like your mom on steroids and I will <laughs> nag you till I get it my way. I don't run a militaristic kitchen, but I'm not a slouch. So there's a difference. I'm not going to grind you in the pavement for no reason. If you're going to make the same mistake four or five times, then maybe, yes, you're going to the pavement. But not until I've wasted my breath and my patience and finally my temper to prove to you why it's important for you to do whatever it is I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to do it that way because I believe that when I step out of the building, no one should be able to tell that this kitchen should run just as smoothly. The food should be just as good. There is no excuse. If I've done my job as a good chef and manager, there should be no distinction between when I'm here or when I'm not, because I'm very seldom gone, but when I am gone, I don't want to have a heart attack thinking this place is going to fall apart. And Giancarlo very much has systems in place. We're very lucky. We have very old, long-time staff that is not complacent, that still cares, that still does a really good job every single day and tries to take care of that guest to create an experience, not just eating out, but to create an experience. We feel like we're an Italian outpost, if you will. We've had many an Italian vintner here and an Italian chef trying to embody what we think Italian cuisine is. Mm -hmm. And in today's world, that's very hard because unless you're regurgitating historic or cultural or seasonal or regional, um, what is the future of Italian cuisine? And if, if I get my cookbook written, that's probably what my book will be is what is Italian? Because everything has morphed coming to America. They bring with them traditionals and memories and you know things that they would like to try and do in the new world. But when they got here, the ingredients were not the same. So of course the food had to morph. It would, would in any culture, in any part of the world, when you move, that's the way it goes. So I've tried very hard because I am not of Italian heritage. I've been challenged my whole existence as a, an Italian chef. So I've tried very hard to emulate what is that soul? What is that essence? What makes this Italian? I've asked that question a bazillion times because I'm forever trying to match it in my mind as well as Giancarlo's, as well as my clients. So there's this different philosophy that I have. And I, I have to say now, having hit this the age that I'm at because I'm an older chef and there's not always a lot of us left in the kitchen at my age, it gives you perspective when you look back. I realize now that I've had some validation that I was right, that my methodology did work, that I did train and grow people. I graduated 63 externs through this restaurant, and I still have more to this day. But they're still in touch with me. People still call me. I still talk to people all over the world. And it gives me great joy that I have left, I think, my mark on the world, not the way you would think with food and dining and stars, 
but with the cooks, but with the people who will perpetuate this industry because this is the industry that I love. It's what I've sacrificed my life to. The last thing I want is for it to fold because we can't find sustainability. We can't find it in our lives. We can't deal with mental health. We can't deal with cruelty. We can't deal with pressure and heat and burns and still produce something beautiful. So it is my mission. It is my goal to find a way to help people see the beauty and to survive the rest so they too can create on that level and perpetuate what we've tried so hard to do for the last 28 years. I want to touch on my crew because I think that it's very scary to give away power. And I think especially for my male counterparts, it's when you realize when you're finally comfortable with who you are and what you've done, that giving away power just gives you more. When you give away power, you allow people to grow. And when you grow people, you grow something bigger than just the plates of food. And my crew is paramount to me and that each and every person here is invested. I'm invested in them and that um, they are not stifled. They are allowed to create. So my menu now is primarily all of my executive sous chef, Jacob Ruck. It's my sous chef, Seth Turiansky. It's our pastry chef teams. It's Theron Mars and Ricardo Minicucci. They are fabulous. But we sit down and talk. I orchestrate more or less. I say, I came back from Shed and Single Thread up north, and I was just marveling about chocolate. And if you smoke chocolate, and if you have mushrooms, why can't you make a dessert out of that? So I'll go to Ricardo, and I just ramble through all these things. I bring him samples all the time of the most bizarre things, and it spikes his imagination. All of a sudden, he comes with a great dish. I don't need the credit. I need him to feel comfortable in an environment where he can create. And so we will tear apart a dish. This is too much. This is too sweet. This is too big. This doesn't work. We can't use this ingredient because we already have it in three other places. I mean, we go through the mechanics of it. Don't get me wrong. But at least there's this open kind of loving dialogue about the food being the predominant feature that ties us all together. So, you know, Jacob and Seth, the, the menu's primarily theirs. There's a lot of my classics. My foie gras pasta has lived beyond. And there's a panzarotti. There's the budino. There's our semifredo. There's dishes that, that linger in our, like, hall of fame, if you will. But I need them to get the credit. I need them to grow and have a future and understand what it's like to be a really good chef and bring up people below them. So that's what I want to model. So I lose my temper like anybody else, but usually it's not over nothing. And I'm the first one to apologize or come in the next day and say, you guys, that was my fault. Here's what happened. But I want them to know why. I call it raising red flags. When red flags are going on around you and you're not trained to look for them, you don't know how to find them. It's one of my pet peeves and that people teach you, do as I say do as I say, but they don't teach them to think or to, to prevent or to anticipate or to work into a point where things don't happen. So that's why systems go into place. And when you fall away from the system, you analyze why you did. Maybe the system needs to be revised. You know, so you, you have to have this very investigative, open-minded, working in the same direction, crew mentality and thought. And I think the chef sets that tone. And if the chef sets that tone, then everyone else can follow. And the minute you have someone who doesn't, you realize why they can or cannot stay. I mean, I've fired maybe three people in 28 years. I help people go, but I don't fire them unless we're resistant for some reason. They need to see why they're not working out. It's more important to me because not every restaurant works for every person. They could go find something that suits them far, far better than here, and so be it. That's the way it's meant to be. But there's no reason to grind them up into little pieces and shove them out the door, feeling as if they're not worthy of whatever that next experience is. That's just not, it's not right. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Last question before we wrap up. What advice do you have for other restaurateurs and chefs who are either early in their careers or thinking about opening a restaurant or maybe even in the middle of their careers and aren't quite at the 28-year mark? What do you think is most important for them to know? Invest in yourself. Invest in knowledge and education. Rule from a place of education. Do not abuse your power. Try to train and grow people around you to be your support and to carry the vision of whatever your vision is. 
be philosophical from time to time. Invest in yourself in ways you don't think are food related, whether it's art or music or travel. It grows you as a person. And when you grow as a person, your restaurant grows too. And you can speak to different people in different ways than you did before. Don't be afraid to say, I'm sorry. Don't be afraid to back down and say, I was wrong. Don't be afraid to analyze and ask for help. Sometimes the people around you, you find are knowledgeable in ways you never even knew because you just didn't ask. It's the maturity card, you know, rise above, do what's good, do what's right, try. Those are not necessarily good management mantras or business mantras by the textbook, but I tell you they work in life. It's much more rewarding, you know, and on my epitaph, if it says, you know, here lies a great mom, uh, an okay chef and a, a phenomenal teacher, I'll be happy. Well, Chef, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's my um, pleasure. It was really great to hear your story, and we wish you another 28 years. Thank you. You just heard the 50th episode of Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. If you enjoyed this story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do so we can bring another 50 stories to your ears. Subscribe to the Menu Stories series on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. There you'll also find the complete Aquarello episode with pictures and a behind-the-scenes video. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at Menu Stories, and on Twitter we are at Menu underscore Stories. We still haven't gotten a hold of whoever owns at Menu Stories, unfortunately. This podcast is also available on iTunes. This episode was edited, produced, and photographed by yours truly. Special thanks to Monica Lowe, photographic editor for this episode, and to Patrick Wong, Menu Stories fun-loving video producer and videographer. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.